Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraberti. And I'm Mark Watson. And welcome back to Menkind, where we chat to a range of brilliant guests about masculinity. Some of them are men, some of them aren't men, and some of them aren't particularly bothered either way. We're interested in men. Yes, obviously you are. And what makes them tick? Where does masculinity come from? How does it affect us? And how could we be better? We might not get a final answer, but we'll have a bloody good go at it. Won't we, Michael? Oh, we'll do our best. Hello, Michael here, back from the dead, which is exciting for me. And Mark's here as well. Hello, Mark. What have you been doing? Well, mostly just pacing up and down, wondering whether you would be uh, resurrected successfully, Michael. And I was reassured to see that you'd been on the wine just the other day. So um, from one extreme to the other, really, for you. Well, actually, I wasn't on the wine, Mark. I don't actually like wine. That was a tweet referencing Adele's seminal work that was released. Oh, of course. She's written a song called that. Yeah, very relatable, as everything Adele does is, really. I see. So in that case, your story just check out and you have cheated. (laughs) Which I had to break it to the listeners last week that we didn't know if we'd see you again this side of Christmas or or ever. But here we are, just a week later. Well, it's once a year, isn't it? I get an annual bout of tonsillitis where I think the world's going to end. So I've had it now, which means that Christmas will hopefully be joyous. Yes, and Mankind listeners can look forward to you not getting tonsillitis till about next October, November. (laughs) Absolutely. What have you been doing in the past couple of weeks, Mark? I've been doing, as usual, slightly too many things. I've, in the past few days, been to uh, Norwich. And uh, we've just, uh, before we started recording this... I spent a lot of time trying to describe where Norwich is on the map to you, Michael, who have never visited it by the sound of it. No, I'm not really sure about English geography, bar Plymouth, Birmingham and Newcastle, um, and some roughly London, which I think is down. Is it, London is down from where? If you ever tried to set off towards London but uh, go north, then you will have made a mistake, Michael, from your current vantage <laughs> point, yeah. But the thing is, you have no real need or reason to have the sort of level of uh, geographical knowledge that I do, I suppose. But unlike you, I have spent um, most of 15 years visiting every English town... <laughs> consecutively and then starting all over again that's true are you ready for a really good segue mark i'm ready for the give me everything you got segue wise our next guest has excellent geographical knowledge as well as knowledge of everything else uh, it's paul sinha from the chase wasn't that good i'll allow that because yes paul sinha as well as uh, being a very very accomplished comedian and broadcaster is uh, well known to a lot of people as an international class tv quizzer yes if you gave him a map, he would point Norwich out to you absolutely straight away. Don't worry about that. <laughs> absolutely. He might pat on my back for that wonderful segue there. I'm very pleased with that. What accomplished podcasting. Lovely, lovely podcasting, Michael. <laughs> and let's uh, hand over to ourselves from the past for some more accomplished podcasting. Enjoy. Hello, Mark Watson here and Michael Chakraverti is here. So everything you'd expect, really. But also <laughs> we have, well, Paul Sinner is this week's guest. Hello, Paul. Can you... um? 
tell us a bit about how you see yourself, who you see yourself as. I'm not entirely sure anymore. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> I suppose I've always described myself as the only openly gay, overweight British Bengali comedian, former doctor on the comedy circuit. I've now got Parkinson's disease as well, so I'm really ticking the boxes at quite a rate. And there was certainly an element after diagnosis of going, get in, there's another box I've ticked. Yeah, the Parkinson's thing does feel a bit like a sort of cynical sales ploy, I have to admit, but you've stuck with it. Uh, well, I don't really find it easy to define yourselves within those terms. I'm quite, as you know, as you know me for many years, Yeah, I'm quite quirky and don't really comfortably fit into the boxes that I set aside for myself. No, I mean, even when we start talking about a comedian, but also regular on the quiz show, The Chase, that's an unusual juxtaposition, I suppose it's fair to say. I don't think it's that unusual in the sense that, as you know by now, and indeed have facilitated through a number of quiz formats, a lot of comedians like general knowledge and quiz, and part of the reason they became comedians is because of their interest in the world around them. True. And so I don't think it's necessarily a bad fit. And certainly on Celebrity Chase and Celebrity Mastermind, a lot of the best contestants you see are stand-up comedians. Yes, we've got a weird obsessive interest in stuff. Exactly. I think the only stand-up I know who is regularly moonlighting as an actual quiz show regular. Of course, I see you as a stand-up because, as you say, I've known you for years as a comedian. So it's quite weird to me when I remember that to a whole section of the population, you're something completely different from a comedian. It is weird. And yet there was a point in um, We Need Answers, that competition you set up at Edinburgh, where I think I was the champion of the first year. Yes, this was me and Tim and Key and Alex Horner sort of proto No More Jockeys thing where you did win it. Yeah. (laughs) And I was unbelievably competitive in every game. And it was me that buzzed in first. I remember this very clearly on you asking the nationality of Winston Churchill's mum. And for me, that was the winning answer. It's true. I was already taking it very seriously. Yeah, and that was a really stupid quiz as well. But nonetheless, you had your quiz hat on. Given what we know now from Taskmaster about my inability to perform tasks, (laughs) I think that my We Need Answers win was one of the great triumphs. A really basic, ignorant quizzing question, Paul, which you must have heard before. But how do you retain all of that? When I try and learn something new, something else falls out. I don't know how everyone kind of manages to keep it all in. The answer is you learn as many things as possible and hope for the best. (laughs) Someone came up with the idea that it's like buying lottery tickets. Facts are lottery tickets. And the more you buy, the more chance you've got of winning. Mm. You just try and read as much as possible and hope that it stays in. So you learn your Oscar winners and your sports personality of the year. I mean, the swimmer Ian Black, who won in the 1950s, doesn't come up in quizzes very often, (laughs) whereas Lennox Lewis does. So you try and prioritise what's more likely to come up. Yeah, one day there'll be an Ian Black question, you think, at last. (laughs) (laughs) We should probably get going with our first question, Mark, do you reckon? Yeah, but you're equipped to ask that question, Michael. I am equipped, generally. I often write it down, actually. People might not realise, just in case I forget it. (laughs) Paul, what do you think of when you think of masculinity? Uh, A four. (laughs) (laughs) It's about time someone said that. In the most simple terms. But B, (laughs) it just represents a battle that I've been silently fighting all my life. Because I knew I was gay from the age of seven or eight. Yeah. I didn't realise that, I must say. I've seen you talk about it on stage, but I don't think I've heard you say that. From a very early age, I was emotionally attracted to the masculine guys that were part of my friends at school. And so it was all very strange and weird what was going on with me. And I wasn't trying desperately to fit in by not being feminine. I just was never particularly feminine. It wasn't my... Makeup, but neither was I 
what you'd call laddish. Mm. Uh, I was firmly in the in-between of, oh, it's him. <laughs> it's that, I suppose blokish is the correct description of somebody who's just a bloke. Yeah, you're just a mediocre man. When you say you were kind of emotionally attracted towards masculine guys, what did masculine guys look like? What did that mean? They just were good at sport, I suppose, and had a self-confidence. You know, you spot these kids at the seven or eight that are already confident in their own skin and how they talk. And I imagine it's different now. But at school, you can be confident and camp and people accept you for who you are. But that was never an option in the posh prep school that I was sent to at the age of eight. You couldn't be confident and camp. That was just not an option. Mm. And I don't even really remember camp as a thing. I don't know whether all the camp ones were hiding a light under a bushel, but I never really remember it as an option. And I went to a public school called Dulwich College. Yeah. And like all boys' public schools in the 1980s, non-masculinity terrified them because they don't want to be the school that has a reputation. It equates campness with homosexuality, and they don't want to be the school that has a reputation for this kind of thing. Yeah. Was it an all-boys school? It certainly was an all-boys school. And growing up as rapidly as I was, and being just surrounded by beautiful masculinity everywhere that I looked. No one really understands how tough it is because everyone else gets to self-express, mm. but you don't. You have to hide all your feelings in. Yeah, it must be very... I've never really thought about this, but if you know you're gay and you're attracted to men and then you're in a school environment where everyone is a man, I mean, it must be hard to get through the day. That's a very, very, very good description. <laughs> and if nobody understands... Just imagine you're a heterosexual man growing up heterosexual and you're the only male student in an all-girls school, and that'll give you some idea of what it's like. It'd be a struggle, I reckon, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you briefly mentioned hiding a light under a bushel. Just quickly, what is a bushel? I've heard this expression a lot. This is a biblical reference, Michael. Right, yeah. oh, I haven't read that. It's just a phrase for keeping your true self hidden. I mean, know the meaning, but I can't picture what a bushel is. I mean, I like to think that it's named after Gary Bushel, the right-wing former <laughs> Sun journalist, <laughs> who very much kept his left-wing feminine side hidden for several decades. As so many right-wing people do, <laughs> one likes to think. But masculinity as well. The other thing is... And Mark will know this. I grew up obsessed with sport. Mm. Yeah. Probably more obsessed with sport than any other student I had ever encountered, either at prep school or public school. And therefore, I always had a way in to fit in. Yeah, we've talked to quite a few people on this podcast who they knew they were gay growing up. And sport for them was a kind of thing that other boys weaponized to exclude them or leave them out. And they felt isolated because they weren't into it. But yeah, what's interesting about you is... You're the opposite, really. You ticked all the boxes of being into sport, into boys' stuff. And although I was never good at sport and absolutely terrible at athletics, I was never bad at it either in terms of the big three that we had at our school of cricket, hockey and rugby union. Hmm. I was always just about good enough to get by, enough to enjoy sport and take part in it and be active in it and being an Asian in the 80s, everyone expected you to be the deadly leg spinner that would cast wizard spells through opposition batting lineups. So there was <laughs> something of a disappointment when it turned out to be nothing of the sort. Yeah, to be Asian and not be that good at cricket is a betrayal, <laughs> basically, in this it's, era. It, it, it's tough. Uh, but I never aroused suspicions. I was just about blokish enough. And I was in my school chess team and my school mathematics team and my school general knowledge team. And so that's what I was known as. I was the guy that was in those teams. 
I wasn't the guy that stood out as being either especially masculine or especially feminine. Mm. It's a particular level of school where you've got a school maths team. Did you play maths competitively against other schools? Or? For two years, yeah. And we reached the London School's final one year. My mum came to see me and we got massacred <laughs> by a team from the City of London School that took it far too seriously than we did. What sort of stuff did you have to do in like competitive maths? I can't quite picture it. Solve maths problems. Okay, right, yeah. <laughs> With a crowd cheering you on. Yeah, there was a crowd, yeah. <laughs> I love it. But all this time you did know you were gay, but it wasn't presumably an option to talk about that to anyone. No, no. It was very much an expulsion of crime to have gay behaviour. I'm reliably informed that the year before I joined my public school, the headmaster personally banned a drama society production of another country because of its gay issues. Wow. It was a school that was really paranoid. And yet I found out later on that at boarding school it was rife. So there was this whole culture of people discovering themselves going on. And your family, presumably it wasn't something you could have discussed with your... This is nowhere near the time or place. No, it's, you know, even kids from atheist left-wing liberal families couldn't discuss this. <laughs> Still couldn't be gay. <laughs> Still couldn't. No, there was just no option at all. Once you've left that environment then, what happened next and what changed in your experience of yourself and how you expressed yourself? Well, firstly, I came out to two people, my two best friends from school. One of them was a bit confused but understood and the other one was a bit confused and understood. <laughs> the first guy that I came out to, I was deeply in love with and I was hoping that he would return the favour. But oh, it's a tactical coming out. <laughs> it was a tactical coming out and that didn't happen. And then at medical school, alcohol happens. Mm. and alcohol changed my life i'd never ever been drunk before i'd got to medical school and within two weeks i'd come out to several friends <laughs> i mean i'm not saying that my coming out process at medical school was all fun and games and it certainly was the case that most of the time i came out people go oh yeah i heard that ages ago <laughs> because anyone that promises to keep it secret doesn't mm -hmm. so you have yeah. this thing but in the six years that I was at medical school, I turned into from quiet bookish chess and maths fan to very well-known, popular, drunken gay man. <laughs> Far too stuck into uh, extracurricular activities at med school. And I was extremely well-known and well-liked by the time that I left medical school. But your family's still not aware of it at this point, or...? Well, I mean, at this point, I might point out that my two coming-out processes, or three if you include my sister, were very, very different. Uh, the sister was first. I went to visit her at Warwick University at a night out. She was a student there. And at the disco, I took her to one side and said, by the way, I need to tell you something. I really like Take That. <laughs> she said, oh, yeah, so do I. I went, no, I really like Take That. <laughs> and she was a little bit surprised, but she hadn't guessed. But neither did she give a flying fuck about the whole thing at all. Mm. She was utterly unbothered because that's who she is. But my mum was very different. My mum found out because somebody got drunk at a house party we were at, found my home number lying around somewhere, rang up and said, your son's gay, and put the phone down. Fuck. Oh, and That's how your mum found out? Oh, yeah. I still don't know who it was. I live with the knowledge that it was probably someone that I know very well, but I've decided there's no point in pursuing the issue 25 years on. Gosh, that's awful. Oh, yeah. You know, you're not going to believe this, but not all adventures with alcohol turn out to be successful. You heard it here first. I don't believe it, but I, you do hear about this stuff happening. <laughs> yeah. well, I'll be honest with you, it didn't go well. My mum was horrified and upset and we had the big talk and we just decided we'd never discuss it again. And then my dad found out 11 years later after my mum let slip while they were discussing my future 
that there was something about me that he wasn't aware of. And so we had to have the big coming out thing. And that was the one that changed my life because I thought it would go disastrously and it actually was very reasonable indeed. Yeah, I've heard you talk about this on stage a bit, I think, but it is quite something. The idea that your dad didn't know for a decade. No, 35 I was when my dad found out. And although it wasn't easy, it was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. And he certainly understood. But the difference in your mum and dad, with a lot of ethnic families, if we want a better phrase, is quite often the mum's very sheltered and the dad's a man of the world. Yeah. Because the mum's been the housemaker and the dad's gone out and worked. And it's often the dad that's found out about the world around them not being as simple as they thought it was going to be. But I think the other thing that really, really helped is that not just my generation, but their generation as well, a fair number of marriages failed. And this reality that life isn't straightforward, that life is actually really complicated, and that coming through this being as happy a person as you can be is far more important than conforming to the normality that you thought you had to live your life by. Mm. I can only be grateful to those people of my generation that messed up their first marriage. Standard bearers, those guys. They opened the doors for everyone. And fair play. They always got it right second time. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think you went through a fairly similar process? You mentioned sort of torment at school because you knew you were this thing that couldn't really be spoken about. And then you kind of went through this kind of transformation, I suppose, from that chess player to this popular drunk gay, as you put it. (laughs) What was that transformation like? I mean, you mentioned alcohol, but how did that sort of happen for you inside? It was humour. It was being the funny guy. Right. You can make people laugh in conversation, then you become popular. I was always engaging and friendly to people. And basically me and a guy who's still one of my best friends in the world, we edited the gossip magazine at the medical school for a year. And quite frankly, that makes you king <laughs> within the medical school hierarchy. There's power attached to that, presumably. There is power attached to that. But it was the first time that I had popularity parity with the unbelievably hot and popular sportsman at medical school. I was as well known for being funny and writing this gossip mag as any of the sports stars. Unbelievably, at school, chess and general knowledge didn't give you that parity. <laughs> but at medical school, it did. But now, finally, common sense started to take hold. Did you feel that your sexuality was a problem at any point, or was it just sort of waiting for the world to catch up with you? Um, it's amazing, really. When I think back to the fact that it was over 25 years ago, mm. it just wasn't problematic. Uh, mm. People knew, joked about it, you'd laugh, you know. And I played for the second 11 and occasionally first 11 cricket team at medical school. I must stress that this wasn't through being good at cricket, <laughs> but it was because quite regularly they needed emergency players to shore up a shortage. You were available rather than good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but playing sports at university put me at close quarters with the ultimate in laddish masculine culture. And I never felt not included. Mm. And I think that with being gay, a lot of it is about emotional honesty. If you are who you are and you're honest and upfront and people know, then I think that you're in a much better position than if you're hiding. Mm. I'm not saying that the life didn't have crises. I'm not saying that I wasn't the one crying in a corner of this guy was a drug too much crying about everyone not understanding and I'm never going to get a boyfriend. Mm. I have been that person. At the same time, that was a minority of occasions. And most of the time, I was just happy and comfortable in my own skin, confident that my mum and dad would never find out. (laughs) And I was a masculine member, you know, I was not seen as camp or bitchy funny or whatever. I was a bloke who played cricket and drank beer, played the quiz machines and 
was a fully functioning and well-known member of St George's Hospital Medical School's social scene. When it did come to coming out to your parents, does coming from an Asian family impose more pressure, do you think? Um, I think statistically, over the course of Asian families, if you record all the incidences, well, it must do. Mm. I mean, when you go to India, you become very much aware of the degree to which, for most families, the cycle of life and circle of life is just what people live for. Mm. Get a good job, get a good wife, get married, have children. What's fascinating, though, sorry to interrupt, but what's fascinating is when I went to India fairly recently, given the pandemic, was that how much homosocial affection is shown. So two men frequently hold hands or walk down the street sort of draped over one another, but then homosexuality seems so forbidden almost. And there's sort of this kind of disparity there, isn't there, between this homosocial and homosexual affection. Would you agree? It's an odd thing when you see it for the first time, isn't it? Mm. Men are holding hands in the street, exactly as you described, and understanding that it's not what you think it might be at all. Yeah. These men are not bumming each other in any way, shape or form. <laughs> to cut the chase. <laughs> it is a weird one, yeah. Difficult to explain. But you were saying in India there is this idea that a marriage is just almost not a sexual thing so much. It's just one of the series of rituals that make up your time on earth sort of thing. You just do it. Exactly, yes. And I don't think that's changed. And I live in a process of, I mean, I've not been to India since 2011. And it's very much, they don't talk about it and I don't talk about it. And my dad's sister came to stay for about four months. And obviously you can't really avoid it because my then boyfriend was coming around to visit all the time. My one cousin who uh, is socially aware enough for me to be honest and open with, he told me that she'd described him as my wife on the phone to him. So people have ways of trying to understand. But I don't feel that it's very uh, realistic for me to spend my life worrying about what relatives in India feel about the whole thing. I've just got to live my life. Mm. Yeah, of course. Do you feel a connection still to your ethnic background? Or do you feel sort of like you've had to move away from it slightly? I feel a connection to my ethnic background quite deeply. It's what I am, it's where I've been. I still support India just about at cricket. <laughs> I'm a non-practicing Hindu. I'm very proud of my background and my ethnic heritage. Mm. But increasingly, this is quite sad. I don't see big reasons to go back to India because my grandparents were all passed away. And so that direct lineage is not there anymore. Mm. So, and I feel that with my Parkinson's, that my time is best going to places I've never been to rather than places I've been to 14, 20 times before. Yeah. For those who might not know what Parkinson's is, could you give us a quick kind of precy of what it means? Look at me using precy again. Used that a couple of episodes ago. Quite pleased with that. It sounds fancy, yeah. Yeah, But all he means is tell us (laughs) your symptoms are. I was diagnosed with a neurological disease called Parkinson's. It means that my movement is stiff and slow. It means that to stop my movements getting worse, I have to take medication every day. That makes me tired and grumpy and anxious quite a lot. But also, I think the one thing I'm very grateful to Parkinson's for is no one knows when it's going to get worse. And therefore, there's no point worrying about it. You just got to get on with your life and fill in as many things as possible before it gets worse. Each person has a very, very different pattern of how Parkinson's affects them. And therefore, I've got no option but to live my life because I can't be sitting around going, when's this getting worse? Um, (laughs) And you very much do live your life. You're so active in all the things you do. Yeah, very much so. What's your relationship like with your parents now? It's amazing. (laughs) Oh, that's lovely. It's just really, really... I must stress, I'm a married man. So in terms of what you talk about masculinity, because I've only found masculine men emotionally attractive and physically attractive, I didn't have a boyfriend for... 
the first 23 years of my adult life. I never found anyone that would either want to meet me on a second date or I wanted to meet them on a second date. Mm. Don't get me wrong, I worked my way through most of London, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't from want to try. But rarely twice. <laughs> and so I just, I never thought a long-term relationship was going to be for me. And then I got into one in 2011 for four years and... It was interesting to me because I was so obsessed with making my parents happy. It never even seemed to occur to me that the relationship was a disaster in that it was two totally unmatched people just making do. Mm. And when I eventually I got dumped, I got dumped for the most extraordinary reason, which is that uh, he decided he was going to be straight. Ah. Uh, and I was unaware that people could do this. What, be straight? Well, yeah, or just switch <laughs> off like that. But when he told me, I was like, okay, if that's your decision, there's literally nothing I can do to stop you. Mm. If you've thought about it for this long and decided that's what you do with your life, I'm not going to be pathetic about it and try and ask you or beg you to hold on. I'm going to go, fine, let's move on and let's seek our different ways. And then within a year, I was back in a relationship and we got married on December 2019. And my dad sat and drank his way through the pub. He could not have been happier. He genuinely couldn't have been happier. Because I think that what weddings represent to marriage represents to traditional parents, once you've got over the fact that your son's not going to marry a woman, mm. you want them to marry someone so that they're emotionally happy and have got a partner for the rest of their lives. That's really interesting. A lot of parents reject the idea of you know a gay marriage or something because it offends their traditional ideas of what is meant to happen. But you're saying... For your dad. Yeah, it was the absolute opposite. Yeah. When I told them, it was very much, this is what we want you to do. So you can be gay as long as you still get married and settle down sort of thing. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, it was the most glorious day of my life. But a lot of what was glorious about it was the big smile on the face of my mum and dad. Amazing. That their son, contrary to what they genuinely thought would happen to me, has actually found someone that he loves and loves them back. And it was great. And when things like that happen, suddenly you go... Who gives a shit about the ideas of masculinity anymore? Just live your life as close as you want to live it. And a lot of this stuff doesn't really matter. Oliver, my husband's, again, neither camp nor laddish. He's bang in the middle. And that's fine. I don't have to marry the captain of the rugby team. That's realistically never going to (laughs) happen. He's giving me a little look at the moment. (laughs) Well, I'll just marry somebody I love because that's far more important. Yeah. And so what seemed really important for the first 25, 30 years of my life, which was that I want to be masculine enough to fit in in all um, the strata of society, doesn't seem important to me anymore because once you're out of the closet to the entire nation, who gives a damn whether you're masculine or not? Just be yourself. Yeah. Mm. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You mentioned in your introduction that you don't feel like you fit in the boxes you put yourself in. That's quite a nice way to think about the world, really, is just kind of disregarding all these kind of labels and these restrictions. Do you think you live by that all the time? Or do you think sometimes you find yourself stuck back in these boxes? Uh, Well, what I do feel, for a start, is that being gay shouldn't oblige you to do anything. Mm. I remember the first time I felt like this was in 1989, when I was in a gay bar, and they played Love in the First Degree by Bananarama on the jukebox, and the entire place went insane. And I was standing there going, this is Bananarama. <laughs> and the place has gone absolutely insane. And I realised that I was expected to like very different music to what I liked. And it's that expectation that I find weird, because a lot of my musical tastes are very gay. I like musicals. I, the Pet Shop Boys are my favourite musical artists of all time. I grew up loving ABBA, and in 1984, I was very much a political gay, thanks to things like the music of Bronski being the Communards and Frankie Goes to Hollywood, etc. So, <laughs> yeah, what you'd expect from a cool gay music lover, basically. But at the same time, I like Radiohead, I like Springsteen, I like Prince, I like Kate Bush, I like all sorts of music that doesn't come under the, oh, gay people must love this. (laughs) And what I won't do, and I refuse to do, is like music just because I'm meant to. Yeah, yeah. And the whole thing of this masculinity thing, me and Ollie recently got invited to the Attitude Awards, and I've never been invited to a gay awards ceremony. It really got on my nerves that I was never considered to be the right sort of gay to get invited to an awards ceremony. I've been very open about it on Twitter. As, as I think I saw you complain about it on Twitter, in fact, yeah. And some, the, the editor of Astu magazine saw my tweets and invited me and Ollie to the awards. And the dress code was dress camp. And immediately my hackles were up because I don't dress camp. That's not what I do. I don't really make statements with what I wear. That's not who I am. I'm probably happy to look smart and to make a real effort. But for me, camp is me appropriating the tastes of other people Mm. and pretending to be them. But however, Ollie loves a bit of those. And so I decided to dress up rather than be camp, just dress up with brighter colours. This isn't really the story of the awards. For me, the story of the awards was I was on a table next to Mark Gattis and suddenly I'm thinking, wow. I'm on a table next to Stephen Fry and Richard Wilson, the actor, and Russell T. Davis, uh, the guy from the Scissor Sisters is on another table. Oh, Jake Shears. Jake Shears. And I'm looking around going, isn't it great to be gay? What a gang you're part of. <laughs> All these talented people are gay. Yeah. And then Billy Porter received an award for, oh, I don't know, just being a ledge or something like that. Or <laughs> yeah. One of those You're Unbelievable awards. <laughs> and he gave a speech about his HIV and his life and being bankrupt and how he's fought from it and the importance of being a political gay. And it's one of the best speeches that I've ever seen in my life. And a strong defence of flamboyance and camp and being who you are, etc., etc., etc. Got a standing ovation, walked off, and then the host, Tom Allen, went, and now steps. <laughs> and for me, this is where I draw the line. <laughs> I've got nothing against the band. I've got nothing against people who love steps. It's not that. 
is you shouldn't be obliged to like steps just because you suck cock. Um, <laughs> Title of the episode. <laughs> surely, surely it is, yeah. I, I don't get the connection. Yeah. I don't get why living your life being attracted to same-sex people means you're meant to like steps. You shouldn't have to finish sucking cock and then say... Five, six, seven, eight. <laughs> <laughs> it just seemed like a real dissonance between the power and inspiration of Billy Porter's speech mm. and then a moderately good, mostly covers band... Everyone's going absolutely over the top for. It feels like Gaynor's sort of selling itself short after the speech that you've seen. Exactly. This feels like an obligation, and mm. that's kind of what I resent. Talking as somebody who would be screaming at hearing <laughs> steps. What? I saw your reaction. I made sure that wasn't <laughs> You'd have finished it through Billy Porter's speech and then got excited for steps, you. <laughs> I'd have been waiting for Billy to finish, yeah. No, I completely hear you. I completely think there is this strange tribal urge that everybody must fit this kind of one size, I suppose. What do you think could make that better or different or make more people feel included? I think it's going to organically just change. I think that the diversification of society will organically mean that people don't feel left out because they don't do this or they don't do that. Mm. I have been in the quizzing world for nearly 12 years now, 13 years. And before I joined the quizzing world, I'd never met a gay person that was into sport like I was into sport. Mm. I consider myself about the fifth or sixth best openly gay sports quizzer that I've met since the diversity is out there. Yeah, for sure. And it's not always celebrated and it's not always... I mean, one of my friends is the most blokey, bloke, bloke gay man you could ever meet. And football is literally the only sport he's not into. He's, he's obsessed with rugby league or rugby union. And... Many gay men are, Paul. Something about rugby seems to attract many gay men. Yeah, but not even in terms of fancying the people, but just knowing the stats. <laughs> but I agree with you. I think every gay man should watch a game of rugby from time to time. <laughs> but I've met so many people, and you've seen it in comedy as well, with people like Larry Dean. Oh, he's brilliant. More and more gay comedians are offering something different from what they're expected to offer. For sure, yeah. Larry doesn't intentionally tick any of those boxes. Yes. And when I turned up to Edinburgh in 2006 for my breakthrough show, Saint or Sinha, I knew what I was doing. I knew that I was going to be the first openly gay comedian at Edinburgh to be offering comedy from a non-camp perspective. I knew that. Mm. I knew what I was representing and I knew that was the right year to go up there. Now, if I go out to Edinburgh, I'm just another one player in that furrow, so to speak. There's loads, mm. and it's great. So I think the diversification thing, it just happens bit by bit. And the internet and social media gives us so many opportunities to converse and engage and meet people who share our interests mm. in a way that when I was in my 20s, I couldn't meet a gay man who really, really, really liked football for love nor money. Sorry, for love or money is a terrible phrase to use in that situation. <laughs> yeah. However much I offered love or money, I couldn't get a gay man to watch football with me. <laughs> but now it's just commonplace. And you think that diversification will continue, that it'll just be more and more normal? I think that already diversification's kicked in, and especially with the... I mean, obviously, we've got a long, long way to go. But I think that there are a lot of people for whose in quizzing anyway, whose transgender status is never even commented on mm. as being a thing. It's just, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, people are polite enough to check what pronouns they should be using and going about it the right way. And, then, of course, quizzing is its own world and it prides mm. itself on being inquisitive and curious and tolerant. But I don't think it's the only world out there that does. And I do think that, in general, 
I mean, I can't speak for the real life experiences of the transgender community because that would be patronising. But in general, in terms of gayness, I think things will improve in all ways over a period of time. You mentioned at the Attitude Awards you were surrounded by lots of people who some would call role models for sure, people like Stephen Fry and Billy Port and all those sorts of people. We often ask about role models when you're younger, but I think actually more interesting for you might be talking about any role models that you have now. It's really cliched, but the journey that my dad's been on in life makes him without a shadow of doubt my hero because I think that people in life have to be pliable. Life changes you, life changes attitudes, things that happen in life. You've got to go with the flow and not be the same person that you are at 80 that you were at 20 because life cha- And he's done it with such a plomb. Oh, that's a good word. Quick moment for a plomb. That's a nice word. Oh, thank you. Michael likes a word like that. Ooh, yeah. Very nice. You know, when you talked about, could I talk to my mum and dad in the 80s when I was growing up? No, I know that for sure. I know that for a fact that they would have been very, very bad if I'd said to my mum and dad at the time, by the way, I'm gay. I had to bide my time and wait my time, wait till the right moment. And even then I was pushed by my mum dropping into conversation. But I mean, there's so many people's heroes are their parents, but the life that my dad has led has dwarfed mine in terms of risk-taking and responsibility being juggled at the same time. Mm. And I'm really sad for him when things that he suggests or whatever go wrong because I know that in his heart of heart, he's always tried to do what's right for himself, other people, people around him. I mean, obviously I was nervous about the wedding. I can't even begin to tell you how much the whole thing was water for ducks back for my mum and dad. They were just happy that I was happy. Mm. Uh, in terms of famous people, I'm a massive fan of Peter Tatchell. Ah, yeah. I'm glad I get to say it now because he's not conventionally attractive. He sometimes gets it wrong. But he's been consistently the person that's probably been on the right side of stuff for a long, long time. And I find it curious, if you listed gay icons, there'd be 28 female singers mm-hmm. who'd come in ahead of Peter Tatchell. Because Peter Tatchell has put himself out there, and for me, is an icon. And so people go, yeah, but didn't he say this, 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 this? And it's like, who hasn't got it wrong? We've all got it wrong. We've all said things and done things that were just wrong. But he's got it right enough times for me and risks himself enough times for me that he's kind of my political hero. Yeah, it sounds like in both of those people, there's a sort of courage and bravery. And I think the pliability is a nice word. Would you agree that's the same qualities you're looking at in both of those people? Yeah, exactly. So we've mentioned a couple there, but we finish off by asking about our three favourite qualities. Could you distill the three qualities that you might build into somebody? Yeah, if you were to put three qualities into a person that you're building from scratch in some hypothetical situation where you're God, Paul. And this has to be a bloke as well, doesn't it? Yeah, ideally, yeah. Sometimes we say man, sometimes we say person. It sort of depends on how the conversation's gone. And I suppose it depends on what your definition of man is. And generally, the same qualities go across both. But I think in this context, considering we've spoken quite a lot about man, masculinity and being a man it would be interesting to hear what three qualities you think would be good for a man uh, number one listen to women <laughs> yes they're not just there for decoration they're people with intelligence and maturity and real life opinions and life experience yes. they are very much equals slash betters be prepared to actually listen to women number two be prepared to admit that you're wrong or that you were wrong or that you misjudged something, or you got something wrong. And number three, always remember that no matter what happens in life, the 
health and happiness of your loved ones and friends are the most important thing in life. Those would be the three things. So the ability to listen to women, the ability to accept that you're wrong. And that whatever happens in life, it's nothing is as important. As your friends and family. As the health and happiness of the friends and family, yeah. They're really lovely qualities. Thank you very much, Paul. It's been a gorgeous conversation. Thank you for being so open. That's what you get with me if you don't ask me the questions in advance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where can people find you if they want to sort of engage more with your multifaceted career? The best way to find me is Twitter. I'm rabbiting on like a good... I'm not alone in this, I know, Mark. I know. No, you are not alone. Mark's very good at rabbiting on, yes. <laughs> but um, I think that's the best way of getting a feel for who I am as a human being because it mixes bad puns and angry politics and quiz facts in fairly equal measure. Mm-hmm. And what's your handle on Twitter? It's at Paul Sinha. I thought I'd keep it straightforward. Yeah, that is as straightforward as it gets, really. It is S-I-N-H-A if you're looking for Paul online. Thank you very much. In summary... I used to care or be obsessed about masculinity. Now it's just about getting on with my life. Mike dropped. There you go. And that's the sort of mentality which makes our podcast uh, (laughs) irrelevant. (laughs) Oh, can I say one last thing, though? Oh, of course. If your friends are getting married and one's a bloke and one's a woman, go on the stag night. I've never been on a hen night in my life. But what if you're not invited, Paul? Surely you shouldn't attend. Well, that's very different. (laughs) (laughs) Check whether you are invited first. Yeah, check whether you are invited first. But that's one thing where I will put my masculinity as a marker is that I want to be on the stag night, not the hen night. I want to be on both, Paul. It's nice to be invited, to be honest, at this point. I'll go wherever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Paul. That was really wonderful. I enjoyed that piece of lifestyle advice at the end. Yeah, thank you very much, Paul. (laughs) Thank you. Cheers. That was Paul Sinner, TV's uh, The Cineman from The Chase. And, uh, yeah, very clever bloke, to be honest. <laughs> a really interesting story, I thought, and a new perspective on um, growing up gay and being gay, I suppose, that I think we haven't heard before yet. Yes, we're still endlessly seeking new perspectives. You, you think we've talked to almost all the gay people in the world, but no, there's still a few. And talking of gay people, we've got another one next week. Lovely Victoria Scone, who some may know from RuPaul's Drag Race Season 3, um, the first cisgender female to ever compete in RuPaul's Drag Race. She's going to be wonderful. Yes, if she doesn't have things to say about gender, I'd be very surprised. This feels like the sort of guest that is banging the sweet spot of almost all of our listeners, to be quite honest. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be absolutely brilliant. Um, in the meantime, you can always follow us on our social media at Menkind Podcast, and please do give us five-star reviews. We say it every week, but I don't actually know if it works. Does well, it work, Mark? We certainly have loads of lovely reviews, and uh, some of those will have been uh, spontaneous, but some of them will have been just cajoled out of our loyal listeners by us. So yeah, I think it's always worth doing. To be honest, there can't be many people left that haven't done this by now, because we pitifully ask for it every time. But if somehow you're not following us, rating us, and in all other ways validating us, get on it so that my Michael doesn't have to always do this at the end of the, of the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. All we want for Christmas is five stars and a lovely glowing review. And if you'd like to email us, we are at menkindpodcast at gmail.com. Where else can they find us over the next couple of weeks, Mark? Well, Michael, as usual, I'm touring. Actually, this week is a fairly quiet week for me, just the one show in London. But nonetheless, I am, I'm planning... Uh, to be visible once more in actually a couple of different places. I'm doing my online game called The House on um, Friday. A lot of people listening will already know about that, but it's easy to find out about on Twitter. And then next week I release an audiobook about some of the things that we sometimes talk about on this podcast, I suppose. Mental health, ups and downs, uh, grappling with your identity. And I'm doing an online launch for that uh, next week. Next Tuesday? I think it's something like that. As in a week away from, from what we're 
currently in. Do you ever sleep, Mark? Yeah, no, not really. No, and I wake <laughs> up very early anyway, so uh, often feels as if I hadn't slept, even though I have. Thanks for asking. Well, you can find Mark at all the above places. I'm doing nothing. Pantomime starts at my theatre come uh, come tomorrow, actually, so it's going to be chaos for me until January, but I'll still be here valiantly soldiering on through all the glitter and tears of children. <laughs> it would have been so easy for me to say, oh, no, you won't, but I just don't. I feel like... Th- that's been done so much over so many years that sort of pantomime humour so I'll merely say good luck with your pantomime season (laughs) thank you very much we'll see you all next week with lovely Victoria Scone bye oh yeah bye ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true baby it's me Kiki Palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you 